0: going to be focusing in on, uh, on John chapter 15 verses 26 down to uh, John chapter 16 verse 15. So I'll, I'll read this passage. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going?' This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again. Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Lord, that that even as we begin to study this passage, talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I realize my complete and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Lord, not only for me to be able to proclaim these things, but Lord, for there to be any effect in the hearts of those who are hearing my voice. Lord, I pray that you would take the truths that are present in this passage and that you will apply them to our hearts in such a way that we would be transformed by them. Lord, that there would be rebuke where rebuke is needed, encouragement, where encouragement is needed, comfort, where comfort is needed, exhortation, where exhortation is needed, reminder of the gospel, where that is needed, and Lord, we pray that the gospel would be central in every heart. Lord, we know that this can only happen because of the work of your Holy Spirit, so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lend power to these words. And use them for the, build beginning, for the building of Christ's kingdom. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. When I was a boy, I loved stories about people stranded on desert islands. Whether it was Treasure Island or Robinson Crusoe or Danger Island or even Gilligan's Island, my imagination was captivated. I was fascinated by exotic geography and by creative ways in which the, the castaways tried to, to recreate the comforts of home. I was inspired in the, in the way that they would fight for survival against the odds and the, the way they persevered in seeking deliverance. I don't, know, excuse me, I don't know, but maybe it was this sense of adventure that, that caused me to take Jane to three separate islands when we were on vacation last month. It's a sense of adventure that, that inspires movies like Castaway and television programs like Survivor, but I can't endorse those because of, of a lot of the content that they contain. But life on a desert island is no bed of roses. People are stranded in places that, that tourists spend big bucks to visit. and Castaways faced pirates and cannibals, and they had to struggle for survival for the, the basic amenities of life. They're consumed with two things, seeking rescue and trying to survive. Imagine yourself for a moment on such an island. Although the beaches are lovely and the climate is perfect, food is hard to come by. At any time, pirates or cannibals could attack. You miss family and friends and, and the comforts of home. There's no electricity There's no running water. Coconuts and fish and seaweed are the only things you can eat. But thankfully, you're not alone. With you are several of your closest friends. The adversity that you've faced over the past few years has drawn you close together. You've struggled together. You've fought together. You've survived together. And your leader has exhibited selfless love again and again as he has called you to do the same. He's taught you reality in such a way that makes you realize that you'd never known what reality was before. And amazingly, his friendship makes the deprivation that you were experiencing actually enjoyable. But then he tells you that he's leaving. He's got a boat that's going to get him to safety. The problem is there's only room for one on this boat. He's leaving without you. How would you respond to that news? This is a small and of course very limited picture of the situation for the disciples of Jesus. They aren't merely on a desert island. They're trapped in the world and their enemies are much more dangerous than pirates or cannibals. And the leader that's departing is God himself. And the news for them seemed pretty grim. One of them was going to betray him. Peter was going to deny him. But the departure of Jesus was the worst of all. But in the midst of this, there was good news. Jesus told them in John 14, 1-3, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus wasn't deserting them. He was going to prepare a place for them. He was coming back for them. But they didn't know when he'd be back. Didn't know what they were supposed to be doing in the meantime. But one thing that they could do is what he had commanded them to do in John 15, 12 to 17, to love one another. But the question is then how? How could they love one another as Jesus had loved them? He had already told them how. He said, abide in him. But then you can't escape the fact that he was leaving. So how could they abide in Jesus if he wasn't actually there? They felt helpless without him, especially after what he just told them in 15, 18 to 25, that the world was going to hate them, that the world was going to persecute them, that the world was going to treat them just as it had treated him. But in the midst of this, again, there's good news. Again, there's hope. Jesus returns to the vital issue that he had introduced back in John 14, verses 16 to 17. We said that he would ask the Father and he would give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this is a new development. Another helper who would be with the disciples forever. He had dwelt with them and he would dwell in them. Jesus continued in John fourteen twenty six. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, until the 20th century, the Holy Spirit had received not nearly as much attention as the first two members of the Trinity. This makes sense because we read a lot more about God the Father and God the Son in Scriptures than we do about God the Spirit. And there's a reason for that. As R.C. Sproul explains, the Spirit never brings attention to Himself, but always drives attention to Christ and to His accomplishment. And then Christ, in turn, drives us to the Father. But in our day, some focus an inordinate amount of attention on the Holy Spirit, even going so far as to attribute some very unbiblical behavior to Him while others, in reaction to these excesses, react too strongly by ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit altogether. Jesus doesn't do this, and we must not either. This subject is so vital. The role of the Holy Spirit is so vital that Jesus returns to it here in John 15, verses 26 to 16, 15, just right here, at, at, at almost at the very end of his last discourse, with with the disciples in the upper room. He's focusing his attention on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses here to describe the Holy Spirit is the same as the one that he used in John 14. Parakletos, which is often transliterated paraklete. But there's actually few words that are are translated with more variation in our English Bibles than this word parakletos. Just have a look for a moment at the cover of your bulletin. Whether it's comforter as in the King James, or advocate as in the NIV, or counselor as in the HCSB, or helper as here in the ESV, there, there's a lot of, of different. There's a number of different words that are used to describe the Holy Spirit's role here. Comforter works because the Holy Spirit comforts the disciples in the midst of trials. This is what the Naps, Naps are experiencing right now as they experience comfort from the Holy Spirit, that peace that passes all understanding. The same is true for the Benners. Advocate works also. It's the same word that is used to describe Jesus as our advocate with the Father in 1 John 2 1. As he intercedes for us. And the Holy Spirit also is our advocate, interceding for us before the throne of God. But that, I believe, is a bit too narrow for this context. Counselor works too as the Holy Spirit encourages and exhorts the disciples. Now each of these gives gives a sense of the role of the Holy Spirit, but I believe the translators of the ESV actually get it right here when they use the word helper. Consider for a moment the meaning of the Greek word. Parakletos comes from para, alongside, and kaleo, called. So the paraclete is the one who is called alongside. As a the theological dictionary of the New Testament explains, in early secular Greek, parakletos was primarily a legal term referring to a person called in to help, summoned to give assistance so what could better describe the role of the holy spirit in the lives of the disciples than paracletos the one who is called alongside to help disciples well the question then remains how does the spirit how does the holy spirit help disciples we know that the holy spirit plays a vital role in salvation from generation regeneration to sanctification to glorification as he gives us us the gift of repentance, as he applies the finished work of Christ to us, as he changes us into the image of Jesus, as he is the seal of our inheritance. But in this passage, Jesus reveals three other ways that the Holy Spirit helps disciples. Number one, he helps disciples become martyrs. In 1526 to 16.4, Number 2, he helps disciples convict the world in 16:5 to 11. And number 3, he helps disciples know truth. 16:12 to 15. So first of all, the Holy Spirit the helper helps disciples become martyrs. 15:26 to 16:4. Now this might not seem like such a good thing. Not many of us would, would list becoming a martyr as our main ambition in life. The word martyr calls to mind graphic depictions of torture and execution from Fox's Book of Martyrs. But we need to consider the original meaning of the word martyr and the benefits of being a Martyr. The Greek verb that is translated bear witness in, in John fifteen, twenty six and twenty seven is marturio, which comes from the, the net which comes from the net sorry from which comes the noun marturia or witness. Although Marturia came to refer to one who was killed in the process of bearing witness or proclaiming Christ, the original meaning was simply one who bore witness. Jesus says in John 15, 26 that when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I want us to see the Trinitarian nature of this verse. As the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son bears witness about the Son. Turn for a moment, please, to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now we're going to discuss this later in the third point, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, pointing to Jesus, who is the capital T, truth. The testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son is greater than any testimony of man, and whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness, then the disciples will also bear witness. They will bear witness because they're with Jesus from the beginning, from the beginning, verse 27. So the Holy Spirit bears witness and the disciples will bear witness. But although the disciples were eyewitnesses to the historicity of Jesus' life, to what he said and what he did from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is primarily referring here to bearing witness to who he is. Again, from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, there are witnesses to the glory of Jesus to which he is inescapably bound to testify. The man who is simply an eyewitness in the historical sense sees nothing of this glory. It is only disclosed to the believer nor is it disclosed merely to believers who are eyewitnesses in the historical sense, but to all believers. Hence, new witnesses can arise, those who confess evangelistically who Jesus was and what he signified. So what that's saying there is that it's not enough just to to merely attest to a list of facts about who Jesus was. Remember, there were countless eyewitnesses. They saw what Jesus did. They heard his words. They ate of the very food that he had provided for them. They're witnesses to all of these facts. But they did not understand the significance of who Jesus is. Remember that John wrote his gospel account about all that Jesus did so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is true of those first disciples who testified to Jesus. And it remains true to this day to us to born-again followers of Jesus Christ who continue to bear witness to who Jesus is, bearing testimony to what he has done in our hearts and the pages of Scripture. But there's a cost. There is a cost for those who bear witness. Jesus says that they will be put out of the synagogues on account of Jesus. Now, that was already happening we saw that in, in John chapter 9 and in John chapter 12. But it's going to get worse. Those who bear witness will be killed. And shockingly, the ones who murdered them would actually think that they were serving God by killing his servants. And by doing this, it was good. it would prove that they didn't know the Father. It would prove that they didn't know the Son. It would prove that they hated the Father and that they hated the Son quite often the worst enemies of God claim to be serving him. Think of the Pharisees. Think of Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church in the name of God, how he's knocked off his horse by Jesus who declared to him in Acts chapter 9 verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't just persecuting the Church. He was persecuting the Bride of Christ. And by persecuting the Bride of Christ, he was persecuting Jesus himself. And it continued throughout the history of the Church. Think also of the Roman Catholic Church killing Christians in the Inquisitions. When I consider how far from orthodoxy, the, the, visual, the visible church in the West has drifted. I believe that the visible church is headed in the same direction. But Jesus warned the disciples that these things would take place so that they would, they would remember what he told them and that they wouldn't be offended at him and fall away. So, they wouldn't be like the seed that was sown on rocky ground, who initially hear the word with joy and endure for a while until tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, and then they immediately fall away. Mark 4, verses 16 and 17. There are many who have professed Christ for a time until it gets hard. And then they simply walk away. This did take place in the lives of these first disciples. The hour did come as they were killed just as their Lord was killed. The first martyr in the scriptures was Stephen as he was stoned in Acts chapter 7. Now we don't know for certain the details of the deaths of the 12 disciples, but Fox's book of Martyrs records that James, the brother of John, was beheaded was beheaded but as he was beheaded as he was being or as he was being led to the place of execution his accuser saw the testimony of his response and and repented unto salvation and was then was then killed right next to James Fox's Book of Martyrs records that Philip was scourged and crucified, that Matthew was killed by a halberd, that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed with a club, that Matthias, who took the place of Judas, was stoned and then beheaded, that Andrew was crucified, that Mark was dragged to pieces by horses, that Peter was crucified upside down, that Jude was also crucified, that Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified, that Thomas was killed with a spear... And out of the 12 disciples, the only one who was not martyred was John. But he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But this vile treatment wasn't just for those first disciples. The history of the church is a story of blood as persecution and martyrdom is the rule. And peace is the exception, even though we might not think so from these comfortable pews. I believe every Christian should read Fox's Book of Martyrs, even though it would be one of the most difficult things that you will ever read. Friends, what would you do if gunmen were to burst through those doors right now? What if they commanded you to deny Christ and to leave the building immediately? Somebody reminded me this this of a story just the other day about a church in a persecuted country where a group of men in the church actually disguised themselves as terrorists and then burst through the doors of the church in the middle of a service demanding that all the Christians leave. And terrified, many of the people fled out of every exit. But once they had left, the men took off their masks And sat down with those who remained and the pastor said, now we can have a church service. Now I really don't think it's a good idea to do this and I don't have any plans of doing this at any time in the near future. But, But if this were to happen, what would you do? What would you do? I've often considered what I would do if someone commanded me to deny Christ at gunpoint That someone commanded me to to deny Christ or that they would harm somebody that I love. That's when the rubber really meets the road. In the book, Lilies Amongst the Thorns, we read of of the struggles of Brother Yuan and other Christians in China over the past 50 years. And I remember one story in particular that, that brought tears to my eyes as a father and son were bound in the same cell. And the guards repeatedly threatened to beat the son to death unless the father denied his faith. Think about that for a second. Think about that. Fathers, how would you respond? But with tears streaming down his face, the son begged his father, Daddy, please don't. The father remained steadfast as he watched his son die before his very eyes. What would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. Apart from the grace of God, I would deny my faith with the very next breath. But thankfully, I am not apart from the grace of God. Humanly speaking, I could never endure any persecution for my faith, let alone the death of my child. None of us could. None of us could do that but that's just what jesus is saying that the holy spirit will help disciples become martyrs in both senses of the word they will bear witness of jesus in the power of the holy spirit and if that witness means their death they remain faithful until the end in the power of the holy spirit true disciples remain faithful because god is faithful they remain faithful because the Holy Spirit is the seal of their inheritance. They remain faithful because, like the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, of whom the world was not worthy, those who sought a heavenly country, those who refused to accept release so that they might attain to a better life, didn't deny the faith. They couldn't do any of those things apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do these things apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that even even in the horrors of Hebrews chapter 11, even in the horrors of Fox's book of martyrs, we actually find an encouragement. We find an encouragement as we see what our brothers and sisters have endured for the cause of Christ. But even more, we see behind their endurance the work of the Holy Spirit enabling them to do so. So the Holy Spirit enables us to become martyrs. To be witnesses in life. And even to be witnesses in death. Number two, the helper helps disciples convict the world. Chapter 16, verses 5 to 11. The helper helps disciples convict the world. Now, Jesus reminds the disciples again that he's leaving. He says in verse 5 But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? Now, of course, they did ask him before. Jesus hadn't forgotten this. Peter asked him in John 13, 36. But what Jesus meant here is that they weren't really concerned with where he was going. They didn't understand the blessing that it was for Jesus to go back to the Father. They were more concerned with their loss. We see this in John 16, 6. As Jesus continues, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Their focus was on the fact that Jesus was leaving them. Let me return again for a moment to my illustration about the desert island. There you are, stranded on that desert island, and your leader is leaving. Your leader is leaving. Now he's coming back for you, and that's fantastic. But nonetheless, he is leaving. But if you understood what his departure meant, you'd be overjoyed by the fact that he's getting rescued, even if it means for a time that you aren't. Or a parallel example, think think of if a group of us were in prison for proclaiming the gospel. And one of us was, was able to leave even if it meant that we were stuck there, we would be thankful. We would be thankful that at least one of our number has found freedom. And that's the hope that the Naps have this morning. That Lucille has gone to a better place, that she has gone to glory to be with her God. And that is the hope of every Christian. The disciples should have been ecstatic for Jesus that he was going back to be with his father. But they were focused on their own grief. It wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples understood that after he was ascended, they were able to return to Jerusalem with with great joy, as we read in Luke 24. But at this point, they still didn't understand And so Jesus tells them another blessing for them that requires his departure. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's an advantage for the disciples that Jesus leave so that he could send them the Holy Spirit. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel 2.28, that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. To that point, that the Holy Spirit was only given to select people for specific purposes at specific times. Prophets and certain kings and leaders were given the Holy Spirit, but He came and went, like with Samson or with King Saul. But now, under the New Covenant, all Christians are given the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, he never leaves us. He never leaves us. And he's not only, the Holy Spirit was not only with them, the Holy Spirit is in believers. In believers. Have you thought about that? That one of the members of the Trinity, fellow Christian, is in you at this very moment. But in order for that to take place, Jesus had to leave. Jesus had to leave. Now, if he was going to be gone forever, we really would be torn. We are grateful and thankful and overjoyed in the fact that we have received the Holy Spirit. But missing Jesus. But we know that he is coming back. He is coming back to be with us forever. He is taking us with him. So we can all, we can all be with Jesus forever. So what does the Holy Spirit do here? In verse eight, Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And then Jesus goes on to to tersely explain what this means. Now, these verses are difficult to interpret, but it all hangs on the word translated here, convict. The King James renders it, convince. Now, Scripture always uses that word to describe showing somebody their sin, and most often with the call to repentance. And here, the Spirit convicts the world of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And as Ritterboss explains, also included here is the concept that the Helper helps disciples in their ongoing witness concerning Jesus by portraying to them the true nature of the world, of Jesus' departure, and of his victory over the world. So the Holy Spirit, in this sense, also helps the disciples in their witness. The Helper convicts of sin. He empowers disciples in their witness, especially in the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piecing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 and then verses 9 to 11, Jesus, even though it's, it's, it's difficult to interpret, I believe that the, the meaning here is that, that he convicts through the word of God. So when I stand up here and proclaim the word of God, it is the Holy Spirit that lends power to this word. If I were not speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you were not listening in the power of, of the Holy Spirit, this would be a fruitless exercise. We would just be heaping up factoids. But the Holy Spirit brings conviction. The Holy Spirit applies these things to our hearts. And here this is applied to the world, to those who do not believe. And the worst sin that the world commits is its failure to believe in Jesus. As Jane and I were headed out on one of our island adventures last month, we, we met a man who, who very quickly began to open up to us about his life and about his, his bondage to, to drugs and how his, his life had been destroyed. And I'd share with him my testimony of the Lord's deliverance from, from a very similar bondage and proceeded to tell him the gospel. And so I've heard that story before. But I've got my own way. He talked about some sort of strange mixture of New Age mysticism and, and, a, and a, just a hodgepodge of, of different strange beliefs. But I explained to him that in rejecting what I was saying, he was not rejecting a religion. He was rejecting a person who's rejecting God the son and as jesus had declared that he is the way the truth and the life that the only way to the father is through him I asked him what would god's response be if he had rejected the only way to salvation Now, I don't know what, what the end result will be for that man, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict him of his rejection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit also convicts of righteousness. And I believe what Jesus has in mind here is, is convicting the world that it has no righteousness. Think about Isaiah 64.6, where the prophet says that all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag. And Jesus came into the world as light, but he is now departing, so the Holy Spirit continues as his witness. The Holy Spirit convicts of judgment. He's speaking here of the judgment to come and, uh, and cites the judgment of Satan, the ruler of this world, who stands condemned by the Holy Spirit, referred to in the theological dictionary of the New Testament as the advocate at the bar of heaven. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. His work is grounded on false accusations. However, he is himself condemned. And then all false judgment will itself be judged according to God's perfect, holy standard. And then finally, number three, the helper helps disciples know the truth. John 16 verses 12 to 15. In verse 12, Jesus tells the disciples that he has many things to tell them, but they cannot bear them now. He has just about finished this discourse and they're about to leave for Gethsemane. More teaching here is going to have to wait until after the resurrection. But even after the ascension, even after Jesus was no longer physically with them, the Holy Spirit will guide them into all the truth. As Hendrickson explains, having spoken about the Spirit's work in the midst of the world, Jesus now proceeds to enlighten the minds of the disciples with respect to the Spirit's influence within the bosom of the church. So in the last section, we saw conviction of the world, and now we see what the Holy Spirit does in the church. He'll empower those first disciples as they go around bearing witness to Christ and as they establish the church. He will inspire those disciples to write the Holy Scriptures as every word is directed by the Holy Spirit. For no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 20 and 21. Every word of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The helper guides them into truth. John 16, 13. He guides disciples to Jesus, who is himself the epitome of truth. The Word is about Jesus. He is the Logos of God, the Word become flesh. John 1:14. And Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we read long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the Word incarnate. The Helper will glorify Jesus, for he'll take what Jesus said and declare it to them. John 16, 14. He'll teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them. John 14, 26. Beloved, the scriptures are the words of Jesus, but not just the red words. All the words of scripture are the words of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit ultimately shows us Jesus in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. He does not seek glory for himself, but for Jesus. But just as Jesus did not speak on his own authority but spoke from what he had heard from the Father, John 12, 49, the Helper also doesn't speak of his own authority. He takes what Jesus said and declares it to them. He tells them what is to come. And by this, in the context, I believe this refers not solely to prophecy, but as he guides them into the understanding of the implications of all of the life and ministry of Jesus. But beloved, this isn't true just for those first disciples. It is true for all disciples of all ages. The Spirit also guides us into truth. Think about ways that, that you have grown in doctrine. Think about ways that, that that you have that you have grown in your understanding of the gospel. And what it means today, what it means to you. It's a good thing that salvation isn't dependent on writing a theological exam because I could pretty much guarantee that when I was first saved, I would have failed miserably. I thought that I had to quit smoking because I, I thought I was going to miss the rapture if I was still smoking when Jesus returned. It wasn't for many years until I understood the full implications of the the penal substitution that, that Christ took my punishment on the cross and that his righteousness was given to me. I did not understand imputation either. But if you are born again, you will be growing in your understanding. It's part of progressive sanctification. Just as you as you grow more righteous in your in your your day-to-day living, just, just as, as you grow in, in, in the ways that you reflect Christ in your life, if you're alive in Christ, you will also be growing in your understanding of doctrine. You will be growing in in, in a right worship, because the Lord is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit also takes the words of Jesus and closes them to us. He applies the words of Jesus to our hearts. And perhaps this is more evident when you, when you feel like you're being pulled in the other direction because of the circumstances of life. Again, this is, this, is, this is what the Naps and the Benners are experiencing. They're, they're feeling pulled because of, of the grief, the profound grief that they're feeling, but they're being reminded, they're being brought back to the gospel because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. The trials of life, the trials of life purify us. They burn away the dross. And they cause true believers to shine more brightly. They also, the Holy Spirit also reminds us of the words of Jesus when we are speaking the gospel to others. I've talked about this before, but, but there, there, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you've experienced times when you were talking with somebody about a, about a spiritual issue. And the Lord laid the words of Scripture on your heart. Maybe in a way that you didn't even fully realize, but a way that, that spoke powerfully into that specific situation. This is also the work of the Holy Spirit, guiding us into truth, pointing us to Jesus, and making us more like Him. So as I close here, my uh, I just... I want to say let us not fall into the pitfall of on the one hand distorting the work of the Holy Spirit by focusing an inordinate amount of attention on what he does. Let's also not fall into the pitfall of knee-jerking against those excesses and of ignoring him altogether. May the Lord enable us all to consider the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and may we be encouraged. May we, we be encouraged no matter what circumstances that we find ourselves in. Let's pray together.